You're listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in, Grounded listeners. Today, we're in Ashland, Oregon, talking solar energy and virtual net metering. Now, that may sound like a wonky term, but it's a clever strategy for expanding access to renewable solar electricity to more Oregonians. I'm joined today by a special guest. I am Stuart Green, Climate and Energy Analyst at the City of Ashland. Stu is here to tell us about Ashland's commitment to fighting climate change and how virtual net metering can help expand solar access, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and improve community resilience. Thanks for joining me today, Stu. Let's start with Ashland. Tell me about your community. Ashland is a very engaged community. Uh, There's about 21,000 people here, and I think we are pretty fortunate to have uh, people from all over the world who travel here. Uh, We have a very strong tourism base, and there are experts in their field from all over the world that assemble here for reasons which I do not understand. (laughs) Well, it's pretty beautiful down here, so. It is beautiful as well. I was doing a little research before I came down to visit, and it seems like it's fair to say that Ashland was a pretty early adopter in solar energy. Can you tell me a little about the history of Ashland and solar power? In 1981, we had our first solar access ordinance passed, which uh, was essentially protecting people's view of the sun uh, so that their neighbor couldn't erect an apartment building next to them uh, and shade out their solar resource. So I think we were one of the first communities to have an ordinance of that type. Uh, And we've had since then a variety of different solar programs. Uh, We've been offering city-funded solar incentives since 2001. In the year 2000, we had our first community solar project installed here, which was called Solar Pioneer One. And that was a 30 kilowatt system that went in and followed a few years later in 2008 by the Solar Pioneer Two, which was a, a 63 kilowatt system Uh, Both of those were fairly popular in the community, and uh, even though it was early days of the solar market, still provided a way for people to access solar, even if they couldn't afford a full system for themselves, or if they couldn't put one on their house for some other reason. Uh, So it was a nice program that invited people into the solar world early on and helped to lower barriers a little bit. Does the city also offer incentives for people who do want to install rooftop solar? Yes, we do. The city incentive for solar has changed a little bit over the years, uh, but currently we're offering 50 cents per watt, uh, which caps out at $7,500 per system. And we've had pretty good uptake on that program. Uh, Ashland has had a lot of systems go in, I think, uh, in, in, in part because of the city fund, funded incentive, uh, but also when the state tax credits were active, that was a big help as well. Right now in Ashland, there are close to, or actually a little over two megawatts of solar installed here and about one and a half megawatts of residential, about a little over half a megawatt of uh, commercial solar. Uh, And that's, I think, around 450 installations for about 11,000 meters. And remind me, the, the city of Ashland, is it the electric utility for most of the people living here? Correct. So Ashland is somewhat unique that we have a municipal electric utility. Uh, There are not a whole lot of those in Oregon, uh, and it's been an interesting feature for us to work with because it provides us certain opportunities, uh, such as the ability to directly incentivize solar, 
but also it has posed some challenges too of you know, having to run a city and a utility at the same time. So you mentioned that your job is with the city's climate and energy action plan or climate plan. Can you tell me a little about the climate and energy action plan that was adopted in 2017? Sure. So the climate and energy action plan that we have here in Ashland was the result of a 18 month process. I think that process kicked off at the end of 2015. This was a citizen led committee that essentially looked at Ashland's greenhouse gas emissions and tried to build a very comprehensive plan to reduce those emissions. Our climate and action plan was adopted by the city council in March of 2017. I was brought on about six months, eight months later. Can you talk about some of the action items that are in that plan? Sure. So our plan is divided up into essentially six focus areas with respect to carbon emissions. uh, A lot of it falls into building energy use, uh, transportation and land use, and uh, consumption and materials management. So those are three of our six focus areas. Uh, We're also putting some efforts into uh, natural systems management and restoration as well as public health initiatives and communication plans to help let people know that we have this climate plan and we're trying to uh, reduce our emissions and do our part. So the action plan has climate and energy in the title. Why the focus? Why that connection between climate and energy? My understanding was that we initially started with a very broad spectrum sustainability plan uh, that the community members had brought forth Uh, which addressed climate and energy and a variety of other facets of Ashland and our economy here. After various conversations, I believe our city council decided that they wanted to narrow it down to just climate and energy, uh, as those were the most actionable and related to each other. Being a smaller city with somewhat limited resources, uh, I think they were trying to narrow the scope down to something we could ostensibly manage. Well, and it makes sense that if the city is providing a lot of the energy services, that it might be it might be a little easier to tackle that. Sure. Yeah, and you have a good point that we are our own utility, and that does feed in directly to what we can manage and what we can do. So I think it's a natural fit to have energy as part of our plan. And in fact, most carbon emission-related activities have quite a bit to do with energy. So in a lot of ways. I look at all climate action plans as energy management plans. You mentioned that the community brought forth a sustainability plan. Do you have specific community partners that the that the city really works with to tackle some of these action items? On our climate planning committee uh, that initially formed to develop Ashland's plan, we tried to have as an inclusive a group as possible. Uh, and part of what we did was outreach to the community uh, to gather feedback from any stakeholders who wanted to attend. Uh, We also did some surveys to try to reach out and gather feedback from folks. Uh, But on the committee itself, we were very careful to have representation from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is a key player uh, for our local tourism. Uh, We also had representation from Southern Oregon University, uh, which is a very uh, big player here. Uh, And as well, some members from our Conservation Commission, which has been a very active group Uh, for many decades and has been very invested in the climate process and so they wanted to plug into that as well. We had uh, notably two youth members on our citizen committee uh, from the local high school 
so having having two members from Ashland High School was really great uh, because they were able to lend a perspective I think that uh, nobody else in the room could offer. Uh, having young people at the table uh, who can grapple with the future that they're going to inherit um, I think is is really key. And you also served on the committee. And I was there too. So on the committee, uh, part of our recommendation to the city council was to hire a permanent staff person to shepherd the climate plan through the city and through the community. And at the time, I thought uh, some poor fool is going to have that job. (laughs) And after a while, it it turned out that the job description sounded very apt for my experience and background. And I I sort of had to talk myself into applying anyway, uh, because I knew it was going to be difficult. Um, but here I am. One other thing I would say about our community planning process is that the outcome of the plan was really two plans. Uh, It was one plan representing the community's goals and the community's contributions towards reducing uh, carbon pollution. And there's also a subset which is a plan for the municipal operations uh, to reduce the city's contribution to carbon pollution as well. So we really see the two as being linked together, but uh, we recognize that the city has a role to play and also that the wider community uh, has a very big role to play. Uh, And so this is really the community's plan, uh, even though there is a subset that is municipal operations. One of the programs that you've implemented fairly recently is a virtual net metering program, which will help support solar energy in the community. You were talking about that a little bit earlier, trying to get more folks involved who may not necessarily have access to solar. So let's start with the basics there. Uh, First of all, what is net metering? So net metering uh, at its most basic is counting the amount of energy that goes in or out of a meter. Uh, So if you have net metering on a house, for example, uh, you would count the amount of energy used by that house as well as the energy produced by that house in the event that they have solar or wind or some other resource that's generating energy. Uh, So net metering is simply counting the difference of how much is used and how much is produced. Okay, so then what is virtual net metering? So virtual net metering is the same concept, uh, counting the amount of energy that's consumed or produced. Uh, The only difference is that we allow it to occur at two meters instead of at one meter. Uh, So we will then look at the amount of power used by one meter and the amount of power produced at another meter uh, and combine those to take the difference. What does that mean for the city of Ashland? How does this program help its residents? I think the way that virtual net metering can help here in Ashland is, uh, there's a few ways. Probably the most simple way is that half of our houses here have too much shade to accommodate solar in a financially realistic way. So for the folks who have a big maple tree over their house, it would not make sense for them to remove that tree and install solar, most likely, Uh, nor would they probably want to. So how do we enable that type of consumer to get access to solar? One way to do it is to give them access to a different site. And that's basically what virtual net metering does. It allows your solar to be offsite. Uh, but it'll still show up on your bill just as if it was on your roof. So if somebody wants to take advantage of the program, how does that work? Do they contact the city and say, hey, I want to get involved with virtual net metering? In order for this program to work, we wanted to not specify too many 
rules about it. We wanted to leave it open for different uh, investors or different installers to come up with models that work for them. So because we're a municipal electric utility, what we decided was we can accommodate the transfer of energy. Um, what we didn't want to do was dictate the terms of that project. We haven't really specified how to go about developing these. We want the solar sector to be innovative and come up with new ways of doing projects. Uh, and so we're hopeful that the virtual net metering uh, is opening the door to that. But once there's a project, in answer to your question, uh, it's very simple to be involved in this. If you develop a solar project and you want to allocate the production from that project to a different meter, uh, it's a one-page form that you file with the utility. And you can essentially say, we want 50% of the output from this project to go to meter X and we want 25% to go to meter Y, and we want 25% to go to meter Z. Uh, so you can choose the allocation amounts, uh, and as long as it adds up to 100, uh, we're pretty agnostic about uh, how you develop the project. That's really interesting. So the, the city is pretty hands-off. It's the developer or whoever has the land to install the solar, and then they partner with people within the city who want to take advantage of that solar, and then they connect those meters and then just tell you this is the part this is the deal we've worked out exactly and so we we don't want to tell people what the deal is um, in part because i don't think we're nimble enough to keep up with the market but as well it, it doesn't matter too much to the utility we're simply trying to enable people to install more renewables so if we can allow uh, one developer to come in and put in a project and then split that production uh, among any number of users I think that that could help really lower the costs, uh, especially in the case of, say, community solar. We're trying to keep the paperwork fairly minimal. Uh, I think the real trick of the puzzle is trying to determine how does the project developer and the energy recipient, what are the terms of their agreement? Uh, what are the terms of the host uh, lease who is accommodating the physical panels on their site? Uh, how do they get compensated? Is it by energy? Is it by money? Uh, so we, we don't want to be too involved in that. But we do want to help accommodate the transfer of renewables. So anything we can do uh, to make a project pencil out that wouldn't otherwise, uh, particularly if it enables uh, consumers to install where they couldn't have previously, um, or if it enables a, a ratepayer who couldn't install solar on their house to receive that benefit somewhere else. It's interesting what you said that there half, I think you said half of the homes in Ashland more or less maybe wouldn't necessarily work for solar because uh, of your urban canopy, which is a wonderful asset and on its own. But if somebody who does want that renewable energy, they need to be able to get it somewhere else. And so for it to pencil out where it's beneficial to the person buying, buying the energy, producing the energy, installing the energy, I mean, that's a, that's a big ask. One of the reasons why I didn't want to determine too much what these projects look like is because I think there are a variety of different use cases uh, and they all probably would look different financially. Uh, so one use case would be simply the, the homeowner who can't install solar because it's too shady. Uh, if their brother lives down the street and they have a nice shade or nice sunny yard, uh, they could install solar and then meter it back to the original house. Uh, that would be a very simple application uh, and in fact that was 
similar to the first system that we saw installed under this new policy. Uh, there have only been two installations that have used this policy so far, but it's only a couple of months old. So we're, we're hoping there'll be more. Uh, some of the other use cases that I've imagined for this would be, uh, say, a larger system, a 100 kilowatt system, for example, uh, developed under a conventional commercial financing structure, uh, which is then divvied up to 10 or 15 residences. Uh, so those residences could, in theory, leverage a commercial installation rate, you know, maybe $2 a watt, um, but still receive the benefit on their house. So makes the developers happy, makes the homeowner happy, uh, gets the renewables in the ground. Another use case that I imagined uh, would be, say, an apartment building where everybody wanted to share solar, but they didn't have enough roof space or they couldn't agree on the terms of it or you know something to that effect so that the building owner or the residences could band together or the the tenants could band together uh, and then purchase the system that is installed off-site so it, it enables a, a group this could equally apply to uh, multifamily housing uh, as well as to a dorm for example yet another use case that I imagined as uh, you know here in Ashland we have a lot of historic architecture uh, people do not always appreciate the aesthetic of solar panels, even if they have a perfect orientation. Uh, so having offsite solar or virtual net metering uh, or some policy of that sort and enables a, the owner of a historic house to install solar uh, without messing with the aesthetic of their house. I think that that could be popular with uh, historical districts. It just provides another option, I think, for people. Uh, I, probably what excites me the most is the ability for multiple houses or multiple ratepayers to band together uh, and sort of get that commercial installation rate uh, because having the lower installation cost is pretty huge for the long-term payback. Uh, and, and you know we do see residential solar pro residential solar costs coming down, uh, but they're still quite a bit higher than commercial. So if we can enable more renewables and bring down the cost, that would be great. That's a great point. I think reaching more families who are lower income, who can't afford to put to put solar on their home. And I think a program like this could potentially reach those folks who wouldn't necessarily be able to afford a complete set, but can buy into it and, and at least get part of their energy from renewable resources. Sure. I think, you know, matching up this type of program with folks who normally can't afford that kind of resource uh, is a great application. You know, one of the side benefits of having offsite solar is that the asset is not installed on the property. So, in the case that you have uh, tenants who don't stay very long or students, as we have here, maybe they want to purchase part of a renewable system, but they're only in town for a year or two or three years. Having this kind of a system gives them the ability, uh, at least in theory, to purchase a share of renewables, uh, use it for a while. And then if they leave town, they could sell that back to the project developer uh, or transfer it to their new address if they move. Uh, so the portability of it and the ability to scale the commitment, I think, is pretty interesting. I hope to see that used in some way in the future. Certainly moving inside Ashland, one could transfer their share of uh, a renewable asset from one meter to another. But in the event people left town, uh, I think there would be enough demand here that they could sell it back to the developer and you know, hand it over to the next customer who's ready. 
One of the examples that you mentioned of someone who's already taken advantage of the program, you, I think you use the example of uh, one house can't have solar on their roof or it wouldn't produce very much energy. And so they're purchasing or have this net metering agreement with another house that does have solar. So the, the house that does have solar, is that just extra energy that it's producing? Or I guess what I'm asking is, does house A get 100% of their electricity from their solar and then the leftover is removed? Or is it more like a 50-50 agreement? That's a good question. Uh, so when you develop a project under this virtual net metering policy, the way it's set up right now is that all of those projects will have their own production meter. Uh, so we'll be able to count with accuracy the amount of energy created at that installation. Uh, so there won't be any on-site consumption of energy or very little. So then whatever is produced and passes through that meter can then be allocated by percentage to anyone. Uh, so it could be that the host also takes a portion. It could be that all of the energy goes to another meter. Or 10 other meters. Or 10 other meters, yeah. So we did not uh, specify anything except that the production needs to be divided by percentage. Uh, that way it doesn't matter if it's a sunnier year or a smokier year. Uh, the production is just a percent that goes to one location or another. We had talked at one point about metering it differently or having an allocation that's based on kilowatt hours. And so the first thousand kilowatt hours go to meter X and the second go to meter Y, but that was a, a nightmare, yeah, I think. Cool. And it would be a lot of work for our utility folks who are superstars and are very tolerant of our experimenting. Well, that flexibility, that seems like that would be an added benefit for the for those folks I was mentioning earlier, people who are lower income, where maybe this family can afford a 10% buy-in for, for a meter like this, whereas somebody could maybe pitch in for 75%. Uh, and so I think that you could maybe reach more families uh, or more income levels that way. That's the hope. Remains to be seen, right? Yeah, that's the hope. I, I'm very confident that this model will work here. Uh, it's... Of course, maybe not scalable to every other utility, uh, but it seems to be a very good little niche for us to try to fill here. And I'm optimistic. There's a lot of enthusiasm for solar in Ashland, and I am hopeful that this will sort of unlock the unlock the door for the the many people who haven't been able to get it yet. So you have a new program. It's just getting off the ground. Do you have a favorite success story yet? There have only been a couple of projects developed through this policy so far. It's a pretty new policy, but the one that is probably most notable, uh, Southern Oregon University is just about to complete. They had a rather large warehouse building that had very low energy consumption, but had a great roof for solar. Right next door to that building uh, was a facilities building that had a vast energy consumption, but did not have a great uh, roof for solar. And so what they did in that case, uh, as I understand it, is to install the solar on the warehouse and then virtually net meter that production over to the facilities building uh, to offset their energy use there. So what's on the horizon for sustainability or energy projects in Ashland? So there are a lot of different ideas about what we should be doing. What I can say with some certainty is that there's been a lot of movement on uh, transportation electrification. Uh, so electric vehicles have been uh, a big hit here. Jackson County and City of Ashland in particular are uh, in the top five or six jurisdictions for uh, electric vehicle market penetration. 
we have very enthusiastic community here uh, for all things renewable and it's really it's fun for me to walk around and see the changes uh, you know it's actually when I leave Ashland and suddenly there are no electric vehicles I'm a little bit shocked <laughs> because I'm not used to it transportation electrification I think is a really exciting time right now and it, that gives me some optimism for our ability to reduce carbon pollution I think also there are some pretty exciting things happening with building energy so you can tell I'm an engineer now. <laughs> With building energy, there are a lot of opportunities. I view every building as a 100-year energy commitment, uh, and there's nobody going to come and repair those buildings for us or make them more efficient for us. Uh, so I'm trying to unlock some tools that will help our community make those investments uh, in a way that's not burdensome, uh, and that's a bit of a challenge. Uh, I think that there's a lot that can be done with incentives and city programs. However, there's much more work to be done than, than the city budget could possibly accommodate. So one of the things that I'm really interested in doing is finding a way for uh, the average homeowner to make very significant energy investments uh, without having that cost burden to bear. Has the city electrified its fleet yet? So the city has made some strides towards electrifying the fleet. We have a lot of passenger vehicles that we drive around, and I think that those lend themselves quite readily to uh, electrification. Once people realize that electric vehicles are more fun, less to maintain, and have a lower cost of ownership, I, I see that vehicle electrification in the fleet and in personal use is all but inevitable. Uh, so it's great that we are getting ahead of the curve a little bit. So one of the things that we created recently was an internal policy uh, so that if there's a new vehicle purchase, uh, that the department purchasing that vehicle needs to evaluate uh, whether it can be a non-fossil fuel vehicle or if they require a fossil fuel vehicle for some purpose uh, for its specialty equipment. Uh, so, you know, it's an internal policy. Uh, which doesn't see the light of day much, but I think it's one of the small incremental steps towards changing the, the behavior pattern and trying to default towards the, the cleaner, more efficient, more renewable uh, asset. Well, and you're, you're leading by example. I think sometimes electric vehicles are kind of contagious, and if somebody sees that sweet new ride out there, they're, they're maybe going to think about it the next time they need to purchase a vehicle. I agree. I think there is a, a big element of trying to lead by example, and I think that that is well delineated in our climate plan. It's easy to say and hard to do, um, but I feel that we are doing it as well as we can, uh, and I'm always trying to advocate for more. Well, it was a beautiful sunny day in Southern Oregon. And we look forward to seeing how Ashland's virtual net metering program continues to help harness that sunshine and expand access to renewable solar energy in the community. Find links to Ashland's programs on our blog, energyinfo.oregon.gov. Learn more about our work at oregon.gov energy. All episodes of Grounded are available on soundcloud.com slash oregonenergy. Subscribe to Grounded and please rate us on your favorite podcast app, including Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Thanks for listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy.